0: Well, it's it's nice to be back in in Windsor. Betty and I actually feel quite drawn to Windsor. Um, we, we we like it here, and through the summer and early autumn, we were here quite a lot. And then you might think we fell out with you. Well, it wasn't that at all. Uh, Ballina Hinch was hit by something of a crisis, and uh, we felt needed there. So, do forgive us. But nice to be back, indeed. I feel I have many friends here. Um, I was going to read, I'm going to develop this theme from Matthew 18, but rather than read that, because I'll be covering that quite a lot this evening, let's have another prayer, but this time let's pray it together, the prayer that is the theme of your evening services. Let's together say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Wonderful prayer. And this is the theme, and I've changed the transgressions to sins here. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Quite a challenge, as Paul said. Uh, Another verse that develops this theme a little more in Scripture and uh, in terms that Underscore the importance of it. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God has forgiven you. Very demanding. And the Bible has a lot of other verses that we could quote on this solemn and important theme. I want to pursue the theme this evening uh, in terms of the sequence of events that take place or are described in Matthew 18 and they lead lead up to a parable that teaches us a lot about what Jesus has to say about forgiveness. Have you ever thought, and I I may have asked you to go down this road before in winter, but have you ever uh, thought that there may have been times, indeed there undoubtedly were times, when it would have been very embarrassing to be with Jesus? There were times when he, when he overturned the tables in the, in the temple. Can you imagine how the disciples felt when Jesus showed his righteous anger in that situation and began throwing the money around and, and rebuking those who had business to do there and where the zeal of his father's house consumed him? Can you imagine what it was like for the others? Or when he called the king an old fox, That was kind of dangerous. That was very dangerous. When he told the clergy that they were just whitewashed tombs, I mean, Jesus didn't spare their blushes. He was very outspoken. Sending demons into a herd of pigs that then tore down the mountainside and dashed into the sea, spoiling someone's livelihood. How do you think the disciples felt? Didn't they wish at times he would back off? And then there there were other times when it must have been wonderful to be with him. Times whenever we we, we read the story and we think, wow, to have been there when with a little boy's lunch he feeds 5,000 plus. That must have been exciting to see this wonderful miracle face to face. When he stopped a funeral procession. where where a mother is grieving over her lost son and he raises the boy from the dead and gives him back to mother, wouldn't that have been a great time to be with Jesus and to experience this? When he called Lazarus out of the tomb, Dead four days and, and now Jesus raises, his, raises him from the dead and he comes out from the tomb and they, on, they take the grave clothes off him. It would mean to be with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. To be with Peter and John when they this wonderful occasion uh, took place. When after a chat about Tim, uh, taxation, and this one always has excited me, Jesus gets Peter to cast a line and the very first fish he brings out has the essential coin there the four drachma coin in its mouth that covered the temple text for both of them there were wonderful occasions well on their way down from Caesarea to Capernaum Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum the disciples had been chatting as they often did Just about what the the, the packing order would be, the pecking order in the kingdom of heaven. This seemed to be a preoccupation of theirs. It's amazing how pathetically like us these pillars of the church really were. And the Bible doesn't, uh, you know, it paints them warts and all, but they were chatting about this. Now, you know, maybe some were jealous that Peter, James, and John had been up the mountain and had this wonderful experience on Mount Hermon with Jesus, and they'd met Elijah and Moses there. Maybe they were, because you no doubt they had told the story. They'd maybe boasted of it, and the, the, the others may have been a bit jealous. And there's this chat about who's the most important. And Jesus knowing the way in which they were thinking in this sequence of events that leads up to this parable about uh, forgiveness, Jesus, knowing the way they're thinking, said, well, you know, if you would understand greatness, and he takes a child and puts him in the midst, he says, have a look at this, this child. His life is based upon trust, upon dependence and humility. He's just a model of greatness. Sets a child in the midst. And realizing that this humility and trust and dependence can be abused, then Jesus sounds a warning. And it's in, again in language that is extreme. There's real hyperbole there. Better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the midst of the sea. It would be better to cut off your hands and cut off your feet than to sin in such a way that you cause a stumbling block to one of these little ones, you'd be better to pull out your eyes. And I mean, if we took it literally, we would be a grossly, a, a grotesquely maimed congregation. But he doesn't mean it literally, but he doesn't mean it less important. It's vital what he's saying here. God takes sin very seriously. And that's just what we've been thinking about as Paul led us through the the, the Lord's Supper there. He sees broken lives on earth uh, 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 and hapless, hopeless spirits in a lost eternity. And he realizes what sin has done to to his creation uh, uh, and how... You know, freedom has been abused. Jesus sees all this. And as he develops teaching from the little child that day, you, you, you find that with his wayward disciples, he says, Your Father in heaven is not willing that one of the least of these little ones would perish. Sin is something awful in the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Now, don't miss the connection. Because all of these events are building up to the the, the declaration of Jesus in the parable that sin has awful consequences, and he doesn't mince his words when he's talking about it, and the only hope that we have in this awful situation is to find forgiveness. We need to be forgiven, otherwise our situation is absolutely hopeless. It then follows that if this message of forgiveness is something that we embrace, that we get the picture, that we realize why Jesus had to die, and we embrace the forgiveness that God offers in him, then we need to model forgiveness. We need to model it part of the way in which we present the message of forgiveness, if people are going to take it seriously, if they're going to realize the significance of it in our lives, then they're going to need to see it worked out. They're going to need to see it worked out, practically worked out. And I'm convinced that many people are switched off and are cynical about our gospel because they don't see this Christianity evident in lives of Christ-like forgiveness presented to a lost world. This is serious stuff. In the 18th chapter of Matthew, Jesus outlines the formal procedure for resolving differences in the church. It, it, It may be rather stiff. But it's to be conducted in a spirit of warmth and goodwill, and it's not for trivia. We're not to be prickly people who take offense and are always going around asking for forgiveness and offering it over trivial issues. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. But they're saying when there is an issue that is causing division then there is a procedure, go directly to the person who has caused the offence, and with a warm desire for reconciliation, talk it over. If they won't listen, then the pattern is there very clearly. If they won't listen, then take somebody with you. Somebody that is reliable, somebody with a good reputation, somebody who is wise, and somebody who can understand both sides of the issue. And talk it over with that person and with this witness. And if all fails, then take it before the church. And the pattern is described here. And if the other party in the end of the day won't even listen to the church, then the, 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 the procedure of Scripture is you have to treat them like a pagan. Now what does that mean? In other words, as though they've never ever received forgiveness themselves. They've never really received the Spirit of God. They've never really come to saving faith in Christ. And in that case, then we, 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 we recognize, what do we deal with? We now are much more understanding. That's why they don't have this spirit of forgiveness. I now want to be winsome and convincing and show them something of the beauty of Jesus. And so this, this principle of forgiveness is urged upon the disciples. And Peter comes up and says, well, okay, Lord. You know this sequence, I can understand that. But let's put a figure on it. How how frequently do we go through this cycle? Uh, This forgiveness thing, uh, I mean, people could take you for a ride on this. They they could just go through the the, the procedure and then go back to their old ways and you'd have to forgive them again. How how often do I do this? And he, 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 he sets a fairly generous limit. Peter says, seven times. Now, the the, the convention in Israel given by the rabbis was three times, so he multiplies it by two and adds one. Seven times. No, says Jesus, 77 times. In another version, 70 times 7, 490 times. But the whole principle is there, don't put limits on it. This is representing a generous attitude of heart, a spirit of forgiveness, a strong desire to forgive. Something that is within us. Remember what the Bible says, forgive others as God in Christ forgives us. And I'm sure you're with this, but don't confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. We have to be ready there. God extends forgiveness to a lost world. As Jesus had the nails driven through his hands and feet, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No sign of repentance. But forgiveness has got to be accepted for reconciliation to take place. But we are called to offer forgiveness, to be always willing to forgive, to be going out of our way to manifest a spirit of forgiveness. And we cannot expect any growth in Christ, any power in our witness, if we're reluctant to do this. And the parable that concludes Matthew 18 suggests very strongly that if we don't have this spirit of forgiveness, then there is every likelihood that our Christianity is a charade. A charade. An exercise in self deception and our claim to knowing Jesus is just an empty profession, the story's well known you'll forget i didn't read it early, but let me just outline it the The king wants to settle his accounts, and he gets his steward to go over the books, and the auditors come back and They indicate that there is one man who has incurred an enormous debt, a a debt that runs into uh, tens of millions of pounds by modern reckoning. Ten thousand bags of gold, ten thousand talents. I mean, this is huge money. This is an unimaginable debt. A laboring man would have to work twenty years for the equivalent of one talent. So this is an enormous debt. The debtor would have no wherewithal to clear such a debt. He was ruined. Slavery and total it threatened, total destruction threatened this man. And not only for himself, but for his whole family, under the laws that prevailed at the time. Give me time, you please. Master, give me time. He falls down on his knees, please be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. It was really a vain hope as he pleads with the king. But the king is compassionate. He's deeply moved and you can see the significance of what Jesus is teaching here. The king is compassionate. He was moved to pity. He didn't just give the man time, he cancelled the debt what generosity can you imagine how this man felt do you ever when you're reading the bible try to project yourself into the story and imagine how this man felt wow this was so incredible how he would want to get home and break the news to his wife what a king we've got oh how generous he is how incredibly generous he's cancelled my debt The ruin that I anticipated this morning, it's it's all been lifted. How we can sleep tonight? What can I do to show my gratitude? You would think these would be the thoughts that are going through his mind. Doesn't it seem reasonable that this is the way the man would be thinking? And he has not travelled far before he gets an opportunity to, to share some of his good fortune, to, to reflect the grace and the kindness of his king. He meets a man who owes him a, a few pounds. That's all. One of his fellow servants, a colleague. Can, can't you imagine what you would expect? Oh, forget it, pal. Compared to what's happened to me, this is nothing. Just forget it. The the king has been so generous to me and compared to my debt, yours is nothing. Forget about it. But he doesn't. The the story is, is very graphic. The forgiveness that the man had seems to have taught him nothing. He's hard. He grabs his colleague by the throat. He demands full restitution. Pay me back what you owe me. His colleague reenacted the scene that the forgiven man had just performed before the king. He gets down on his knees. He begs him for time. Be patient with me. And I will pay you back. Just a reenactment of how he had behaved before the king. And this time it would have been possible. This was a debt that could so easily have been cleared given time. The debt was so modest, trivial compared to what he'd been forgiven. And all of this took place within sight of the, of the palace. The king's servants saw it all. They were staggered. They couldn't believe their eyes. They they had seen the king's amazing generosity and grace, his selflessness, and now this awful sequel that's taking place within the precincts of the palace. The man who had been so well treated by the the king now has his debtor thrown into a, a debtor's prison, a pauper's jail. Put yourself into the story. Uh, And the the servants go back. They couldn't let this go unchallenged. They go back and they tell the king the whole sequence of events. And he's horrified. Bring him here, he says. Bring him here. Uh, And let the words of the Bible conclude the story. This is how Jesus told it. Here in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ is how the king spoke to his Unmerciful servant, you wicked servant. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And Jesus didn't leave it there. I mean, this has a horrendous conclusion. This is hard teaching. The man was handed over to the jailers to be tormented. His awful impossible debt went back on his shoulders. And Jesus added, blessed are those, the Bible does. This is how my heavenly father, I'm too far ahead of myself. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from the heart it's strong teaching it, it's it's developing that theme that phrase from the lord's prayer and please don't go away thinking that we can put this forgiveness thing on the back burner this is this is vital it's remember the link between the forgiveness we receive and the forgiveness we extend is Taught there by Jesus, Paul referred to it, we're endeavouring to unpack it, but there's no escaping the significance of it. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And the conclusion I believe that we must draw from this, the reasonable assumption, is that when we receive God's forgiveness and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, and we become the new creations that the Bible says we are, then forgiveness becomes part of our new nature. It becomes part of our new nature. And if it doesn't, then we have grounds to ask ourselves, am I really a Christian? There is a danger, you see, of rocking ourselves in a cradle of a false assurance if we don't apply the biblical tests to our claim to salvation. I don't care what grudge or offense or grievance you are carrying around this evening. It is trivial compared to what Jesus has forgiven in each of us. The the, the significance of what we have just uh, uh, taken part in in the Lord's table, reminding ourselves of that awful occasion when he is nailed to a cross uh, uh, and when he is abandoned by his Father and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the awfulness of having our guilt placed upon him then in the light of that and we need to go back there regularly as we have done and you do each week in order to realize oh my oh my how can I hold a grudge blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered if we're rejoicing in that then we will not Hold back forgiveness to others. These words come from the the pen of a man who who really had messed up. Messed up desperately. You know the story. Big time. Jealousy, lust, adultery, murder. All of these and more. Uh, So God's forgiveness goes a long way. There, There is no one here tonight outside the scope of God's forgiveness. But we will never take effective action, unless we feel guilt. And the devil has become so subtle, so expert in moving the boundaries of our thinking to desensitize us to the awfulness of our sins. And we need to get back there again and realize just how ugly a thing sin is. And the cross reminds us of it. God has given us physical pain as an essential symptom to warn us that something's wrong. And there are medics here tonight who know a great deal more about this than I do. That we need medication or we need surgery, we need some form of treatment or we need to back away from that hot hot object. So the pain is is there in order to to tell us something, to indicate that something needs to be done. Something is physically wrong. And guilt reminds us that something is spiritually wrong. And to be insensitive to guilt and to sin is like having moral uh, leprosy. It's it's leprosy of the soul where the infected parts become insensitive and the danger is of irreparable damage. And it's not cool to be shocked anymore. Shamelessness has become a a mainstream feature of modern society. I, I hear of some who are being referred to psychiatrists because of something that's troubling them. And they're told that, no, it's not the the thing that you've done, it's the guilt that's the problem. You don't need to feel guilty for that. And it's all part of hell's desensitizing strategy. And God wants to remind us of our need of forgiveness. And then he wants to lift the guilt, not because it isn't important, not because he's simply saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter, but my son has died in order that you might know the, the joy of forgiveness. It's not overlooking, it's not excusing our sin. It's recognizing it and recognizing what it did to Jesus and then having the guilt lifted and then knowing, oh, Father, If you could do that for me, if you could forgive the ugly thoughts I've had and the ugly things I've done and the ugly things I've said, if you could lift all that and clothe me in the righteousness of Jesus, then, oh God, I want to go out and and, and be a forgiving person to everyone that I meet. That's the significance. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And the background to this, the cross, one who, who loved you so much, one who in ancient, way before the foundation of the earth was led back in eternity, discussed with his Father the way in which the coming sin of the created order would be lifted and degrees, yes, I'll go. And I'll go and lift that barrier, Father, so that there can be this wonderful relationship between us and the men and the women you're going to make. And God goes to such ends. And I say tonight, I'm a sinner, but I'm a forgiven sinner. And because my guilt has been absorbed by one who never sinned, I want to go out there and extent. Oh, I have a natural tendency sometimes to feel a grudge. Of course I have. I'm not one step above the congregation in this. But every time I feel that reluctance to forgive, every time I, 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 I get that hardened heart, I want to go back to this cross. And I want to look there upon one who gave all for me and overlooked my sin and forgave it and lifted the guilt and clothed me with his righteousness and I want to go out and extend forgiveness to others, don't you? Don't you? And in this way in this way we 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 advertise the reality of this gospel. So turn with me in prayer before we, we sing together before the throne of God above Oh Lord, I just pray that the strength of the feeling of the Lord Jesus on this issue And the power of the story that he told. And the way in which he ultimately gave his life. That all of this will impress upon us, first of all, the ugliness of sin. And the beauty of forgiveness. And the debt that we owe. And that we would go out and, Lord, be known for our gracious, forgiving spirit that we might advertise something of the beauty of Jesus. So give give legs to our contemplation this evening. And as we pray that prayer and use that phrase, forgive us, forgive our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, that there be no humbug, no unreality. Make it real, we pray.